say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 3, Episode 12, Peace at Last. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin, I'd like to welcome new members of the House of Lords. Philip Millich, Earl of Canterbury, Matthew, Earl of Haywood, Jamie, Viscount Greenwood, Tom, Baron York, and Baron William. Like all of our patrons, they can now listen to this episode and every other episode ad-free. The new Earls can also listen to the bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last time, before my office had a power cut for a week and I lost my voice, we covered the dramatic escape of Charles Stuart after his defeat at the Battle of Worcester. King Charles II to some, that rogue Charles Stuart to others, the young royal spent six weeks as a fugitive, hiding in the households of royalists and Catholics, sometimes without their knowledge, sleeping in oak trees and in inns packed with Cromwell's soldiers. He took on different disguises, a farmer, a lady's manservant, a very bad kitchen server, and an uptight Puritan telling off his host for drinking and swearing. But after a month and a half, he made it, sailing away from the English coast with a Republican cavalry troop right on his heels. Charles would make his way to Paris, keeping both eyes on the kingdoms of his birthright for any opportunity to take them back. In the aftermath of Worcester, Charles was one of the lucky ones. Cromwell's army was very effective at catching any survivors, Many of those who had been with him at Worcester did not escape England, and they faced imprisonment and death. David Leslie and John Middleton, two of the most high-ranking Scottish officers in Charles's force, led about 4,000 cavalry north after sending their king off in disguise. But at Blackstone Edge, both Middleton and Leslie, along with most of the cavalry, were defeated and captured. Although Stuart Reid does note that a surprising amount of horsemen actually made the long and dangerous trip home, and they'd be a problem for the occupying English. For his part, Leslie was imprisoned in the Tower of London. He would end up charged a fine of £11,000 by Cromwell's Act of Grace, and though it would eventually be reduced to only a third of that amount, 
he would remain imprisoned for the next nine years. He was only released at the Restoration. Middleton was also captured, but you just couldn't keep Middleton down, and he soon escaped captivity and fled to France. Despite all the odds, this was not the last time Middleton would fight Cromwell's army. Another notable captured after the Battle of Worcester was the Earl of Derby, James Stanley. Both Earl of Derby and the Lord of Man, he was known to his Manx subjects as Anstanlach Moore, the Great Stanley. Derby had fought in the First Civil War, infamously playing a leading role in the sack of Bolton, for which he was dragged in the parliamentary press. Each of the proposed treaties with Charles I had included a list of men who would not be given amnesty and would instead be punished for their crimes during the war. Derby was on all of them. After Derby left England for the Isle of Man, he put down a revolt against his rule by the native Manx and strengthened the island's defences, fortifying St Michael's Isle and christening the new fort Derby Fort, which protected the port of Derby Haven. Derby continued to negotiate with Parliament for the preservation of his lands and estates in England from seizure, but this was complicated by his firm commitment to keeping the Isle of Man royalist, welcoming exiles from England and providing shelter to Irish privateers, both to the anger of Parliament. Shortly after the regicide, Henry Ireton wrote to the Earl of Derby and demanded that the Lord of Man submit to Parliament. Derby outright refused and his refusal was printed by Parliament, firmly closing the door on any reconciliation. So, when Charles II crossed into England in 1651, Derby sailed back to fight. There is some suggestion that his wife, Countess Charlotte, shamed him into action by telling him that if he wouldn't do his duty, he should take off his trousers and she would wear them and sail to the king's aid. So, off Derby sailed with his trousers and left Charlotte to rule in his place. After Worcester, Derby had been one of those officers who had sent Charles on his way, and he last saw his king at Boscobel House. Derby himself had sheltered with the owners on the way to Worcester. He left Charles in their care and went north, only to get captured by Commonwealth troops. He was taken to Chester Castle, where, despite pleas for mercy from Cromwell himself, he was put on trial for treason and found guilty. On the 15th of October, Derby was executed at Bolton, as a reminder of his crimes there. Meanwhile, back in the Isle of Man, Countess Charlotte received news of Worcester, and new demands from London to surrender the island. With no word from her husband, she opened negotiations, which sparked another rebellion from the Manx, and the militia turned against her. The strong walls of Castle Russian and Peel Castle, and the professional soldiers garrisoning both strongholds, kept the Countess in power but soon Republican soldiers arrived. The army arrived outside Castle Russian with two messages for the Countess. First, the demand for the immediate surrender of the castle and the Isle of Man. The second, James Stanley, the 7th Earl of Derby, was dead. This second piece of news broke Charlotte's resolve and she ordered the gates opened. The Isle of Man was now under parliamentary control and the new Lord of Man appointed by Parliament was Lord Thomas Fairfax, former commander of the New Model Army. Fairfax held the position until the Restoration. As you might have noticed last episode, the Republic was turning its attention to the Channel Islands of Jersey and Guernsey. Like the Isle of Man, these islands were not technically part of the Kingdom of England, 
much like today, when all three islands are self-governing crown dependencies and not part of the United Kingdom. Jersey was held by the royalist Sir George Carteret, who had been governing with a very heavy hand. Republican forces landed on the 20th of October and faced an island which was still generally royalist-leaning, but which had little spirit for resistance. Partly due to the complete defeat of the king's cause, and partly because Carteret's rule was deeply unpopular. Most of the older castles surrendered quickly, and the militia fled from skirmishes before they could become battles. The more modern fort of Elizabeth Castle, commanded by Carteret himself, held out for seven weeks, but with supplies running low and no help on the way, Carteret accepted generous terms. He went into exile, joining his king in France. News of Jersey's surrender was taken to neighbouring Guernsey, which had been mostly parliamentarian. Many Calvinists had settled on the island after fleeing persecution in France. But one of the forts, Castle Cornet, was held by a die-hard royalist, and from his position he'd dominated the rest of the island. But once news of Jersey's fall came, he too surrendered on the 9th of December, 1651. Another ember of royalism was snuffed out. In Scotland, things had not gone any better for the royalist cause after Charles dashed south. Just days after Charles led his army out of Stirling, George Monk arrived at the city gates on the 6th of August. The town immediately surrendered, but Stirling Castle was no easy target. Like Edinburgh Castle, it sits on a volcanic crag, with steep cliffs on three sides. Monk settled in for a siege and began a bombardment of the castle with mortars. This indirect fire, up and over the walls, did heavy damage to the garrison and their supplies. As impregnable as Stirling's geography was, the morale of the men garrisoning its walls was much less secure. When his men mutinied, the royalist commander was forced to surrender. Monk occupied the key to Scotland on the 14th of August. A week after taking Stirling, Monk arrived outside the walls of Dundee. When the town refused to surrender, it was put under siege. As Dundee was encircled, Monk sent a force of cavalry northwest towards Aleth. What was at Aleth? The Committee of Estates was at Aleth, trying to organise a fresh army. These remnants of the Scottish government were hit by a cavalry raid on the 28th of August. The few thousand men gathered at Aleth were scattered, and the English took every committee member they could find prisoner, including the veteran Earl of Leathen, Alexander Leslie. He'd played such an important role in the Bishop's Wars and the early English Civil War, but he'd been sidelined by younger, more politically acceptable officers like his kinsman David Leslie. Whatever his chances of growing importance, the attack on Aleth decapitated the Scottish leadership. Two days later, on the 30th of August, the University City of St Andrews surrendered to the English. On the same day, with his preparations complete, Monk once again summoned Dundee to surrender. His artillery was ready, and there was no help coming for Dundee. But he was again refused. Monk's cannons opened up, and the following day the walls were breached. Frustrated by the Dundonian resistance when the war was clearly already over, Monk allowed his men to sack the town once inside. Between a hundred and a thousand people were killed, soldiers and civilians, although it seems most modern scholars put the numbers on the lower end. A lot of Scotland's wealth had been kept in Dundee, 
brought to the town by those fleeing Edinburgh, and so the New Model Army came out of the sack much wealthier. Dundee, on the other hand, would take decades to recover economically. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. A week later, and 60 miles north of the coast, the city of Aberdeen, which had had quite a kicking over the last decade, had no appetite to get sacked again. And on the 7th of September, it too surrendered and was occupied by English troops. All of lowland Scotland was pacified, except for Donata, more in a moment, and so Monk turned his attention to the Highlands, where the last sizable enemy forces were under the command of the new Marcus of Huntley. These holdouts came to a negotiated settlement with the English by the start of December. This meant that the final significant resistance in Scotland was Donata Castle. I've mentioned Donata Castle before, but it's worth reminding you of it, also, it's one of my favourite castles, so I'm a bit biased. Donata Castle, the seat of the Earl Marshal of Scotland, is just south of Aberdeen, and it sits 160 feet up on a massive lump of pudding stone, a kind of Silurian concrete. Silurian, which is a word I learnt today, is the period 440 million years ago. It's incredibly tough material. This rock is surrounded by the North Sea on three sides, The only way to approach it by land is by first heading down the mainland cliffs, and then climbing back up. The path is carved into the sheer cliff face. It's incredibly narrow, steep, and twisting, and you really wouldn't want to be sent to try and storm it while defenders are hitting you with arrows, bullets, or rocks. It wasn't impregnable, but it was pretty close. So, after the coronation of Charles II as king in the start of 1651, the honours of Scotland, the crown jewels, were sent to Donata for safekeeping. With the symbols of Scottish royalty hidden inside, Monk's troops had an extra reason to take the castle. But for all the reasons I just laid out, this was easier said than done. Trying to storm Donata would have been a bloodbath, and the firepower to make a dent in the defences wasn't available, 
and so the English forces set up a blockade. An army sat on the road out, and the English fleet anchored off the rocky coast. The plan was to pen the defenders inside, with the honours, until the artillery could arrive. And so Donotter Castle held out under its governor, Sir George Ogilvy, from November 1651 until May 1652. The garrison, which was only a few dozen strong, was reduced by skirmishes and sorties, and everyone knew that they'd have to surrender eventually. So the priority became how to keep the honours of Scotland safe from the Sassanac. There were two legends about this. The first is that the honours were hidden among ordinary goods and smuggled out that way, in the luggage of the wife of a local church minister. The other story is that the honours were lowered down the cliff by the defenders onto the beach, and then collected by a servant of that minister's wife, hidden in a basket of gathered seaweed, and then smuggled through the English lines. Presumably the English soldiers just didn't want to rummage around a box of seaweed. Whichever way it happened, they were then buried under the floor of that minister's church, and kept safe until the return of the king. Once the honours were safe, Ogilvy and his garrison continued to hold out until May, when the English siege lines received their artillery. Now that it was only a question of time, Ogilvy sent word that he was ready to negotiate. A deal was struck, one which allowed the garrison to leave unmolested, and the English troops marched in. I like to imagine that the English commander took a look around the castle, and then turned to Ogilvy and asked him to bring out the crown jewels, and got the reply, what crown jewels? Because the English clearly expected the honours of Scotland to still be in the castle. When they realised that they weren't, that they weren't buried or hidden anywhere in the fortress, Ogilvy was imprisoned for his duplicity. He and his wife would remain in Donata Castle for another year, until the Commonwealth accepted that the honours were out of their hands. Scotland was conquered. We will talk more about Scotland under the Commonwealth and then the Protectorate in the future, but for now it's enough to know that by the end of 1651, eight commissioners had been appointed by the English Council of State to administer the country, with four main objectives. The first was to enforce religious toleration. Hardline Presbyterianism was an affront to the religious independency of the Commonwealth. The second was political union with England, As many Scots had feared when their king had become King of England, Scotland was to become part of a larger state dominated and ruled from London. Scotland's institutions, its parliament, the committee of estates, its own courts of law, were dissolved. Scotland was not annexed into England, as had happened to Ireland. Instead it was, quote, incorporated with, quote, consent into the Commonwealth. The General Assembly of the Kirk was notably allowed to keep sitting, but it would cause trouble for the Republican government until Cromwell's patience ran out in the summer of 1653. The third objective was money. Reparations, mostly paid from forfeited crown estates and fines levied on high-ranking royalists. And the fourth was an amnesty for the vast majority of people. In stark contrast to the treatment of ordinary Irish, more next time, the Commonwealth saw ordinary Scots as friends and allies who would surely come around to the Republic in time. The blame for the war, the war guilt clause if you will, was put on the Scottish elite. Old royalists, engagers and resolutioners were held responsible for the conflict for negotiating with the Stuart monarchy. Scottish notables such as Argyll posed a problem for the new Commonwealth regime. 
Many of them, like Argyle, had previously been friends of the English Parliament, but the regicide had changed a lot of things. And even those nobles who weren't avowed royalists had been part of a government which acknowledged Charles II as king, proclaimed him as such, and even crowned and fought for him. Could these men be trusted? To an extent, the English had to trust them. Their resources and connections were vital for governing Scotland. But the House of Stuart still lived, in exile, and as English occupation took root, many Scottish supporters of that Scottish dynasty looked to them, to the grandsons of beloved James, the sons of, eh, he was alright, Charles, as an alternative. The Covenanters had wanted religious agreement and political union between England and Scotland. They would have it, but in a way that none of them would have liked. But, as I mentioned, Scotland was treated very gently by the Commonwealth, at least compared to Ireland. Next time, we'll see how the Commonwealth enforces its control over Ireland. The Guerrilla War, the bloodiest period of the entire Irish War by some counts, will be ruthlessly suppressed, with tactics very similar to those used by Lord Mountjoy and Arthur Chichester, if you can remember all the way back to the first episodes of Pax Britannica. Scorched Earth, Martial Law, Concentration Camps, Summary Executions. The Commonwealth would end the war started with the 1641 Irish Rebellion, and it would do so through fire and sword. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite, Mike Sanders, the Duke of Bristol, Bill Winkis, the Marquis of Montague, Brandon Stansbury, and the Earl of Waterford, Dylan Drillet. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to join their ranks and listen to the podcast without ads. Remember that you can join the mailing list to get news about the show by going to the link in the description. For other great podcasts on the Airwave Network, check out airwavemedia.com. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hi everyone, this is Scott. If you want to learn about the world's oldest civilizations, find out how they were rediscovered, follow the story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra's descendants over ten generations, or take a deep dive into the Iron Age or the Hellenistic Era, then check out the Ancient World Podcast. Available on all podcasting platforms, or go to ancientworldpodcast.com. That's the Ancient World Podcast.